Well, good morning. It is great to be up here uh, with you again today. We are going to continue our journey through the book of Acts. Uh, and just a, a real quick recap of what we've done so far. So um, we've been introduced. Acts, did I say Acts? I, cha- I changed it at the last minute. All right. Well, the same guy wrote both. So, all right. Luke, okay, let's go, let's go in Luke instead. Um, uh, but what we've seen so far in Luke is we've seen John the Baptist introduced onto the scene. We've seen uh, the life of Mary and Joseph and the birth of Jesus. Luke gives us some, some kind of unique insights into some uh, things that happened during the childhood of Jesus. Um, we see uh, Jesus then begin his earthly ministry. Uh, and he starts selecting disciples. He starts preaching in towns. And, and this, this earthly ministry is, is about a three-year period of time where he really, he really starts to fulfill the purpose he came for. Uh, and, and so that's where we're at right now. Jesus has called his first disciples. We, we heard that last week. And he started walking around to different towns, preaching and, and doing some miracles, doing some, some incredible signs and some incredible things. And... and Here's where we pick up. So, so a lot of you, especially those in the church, uh, if you've been in the church for a while, you've heard a lot of these stories. Maybe you've heard these stories dozens and dozens of times. And so the thing about a story is when you hear it a lot of times, it, it can be hard to kind of really critically look at the story or to evaluate it. In fact, this is the way that legends are born. So we've got stories that are told and retold, and depending on who's telling them and what area they're focusing on with the story, you see the story can kind of even morph and, and take on a meaning all of its own. So uh, it's difficult then when we go to look at one of these stories that we're going to look at this morning to really kind of reevaluate it, almost as if we're hearing it or reading it for the first time. You know, to, to strip out all the things we've been taught or the familiarities that we have with this passage and to really look at it with fresh eyes. So, so that's what we're going to try and do this morning. So recently, uh, I've been listening to this podcast series, uh, and, and the series is essentially surrounding the concept of um, governmental revolutions. So it basically trace, traces a few uh, popular revolutions throughout the history of time. So the very first one was the, the British Revolution. So this happened in the early to mid-18th century. I know nothing or knew nothing. I still know very little, but anything about the British Revolution. So it was completely fascinating. You get exposed to different people, different political groups, different religious groups. You get to understand uh, the climate that was going on at the time, what was important to people, and, and how people came to a disagreement. And, and that disagreement ultimately uh, eventually led to a war, a revolution internally within the country that changed the landscape of that country forever. So it was very fascinating, especially as the first time going through. It was all very new to me. So, so this podcast series goes chronologically. So after the British was the American Revolution. And when it got time for me to listen to the American Revolution, I had zero interest in listening to the American Revolution. I mean, anybody here that's gone through school in the United States knows that these are stories you've heard time and time and time again. And so when it came time to listen, I said, I've already heard those stories. I really would rather listen to something else. Um, but the, the podcast is kind of structured, so you really, to, to, do, to do the best uh, learning you can from it, you need to go in order. So the rest of my podcasts were kind of boring me at the time, and the host of the podcast is really good. So I said, all right, let me just, let me just trudge through the American Revolution. I've already heard the stories, but I'll get through it, and then I get to go on to the French Revolution, something much more exciting. Well, as I got into the American Revolution, um, the, the, the story 
was so detailed and so nuanced that I really learned a lot, and it really kind of brought the memories of this and, and, and also a lot of new information I didn't have to light. So I got to see how the very early colonies were, were developed, how they were growing, and what was the climate like in those, in those days. Um, basically, you, you had a, an extension of the British government colonizing a new land, and, and you have people who are paying taxes to support this new land. And so you see that um, th- throughout the, the way that the, the colonies grow and develop, you start to see some dissension. You start to see some differences in opinions between what the British government wants to do and what the colonials want to do. And, and you've probably heard the story, or at least some components of it, where the dissension kind of got a little bit louder people started to to want to break away from the government. And so England initially um, sent a small contingent force. They thought, we'll just get over there, we'll just reestablish our rule, and then we'll, we'll succeed in, in putting this down and go back to business as normal. Um, and, and what we see is that they didn't, be, they weren't successful in this. And, and so on the, on the colonial side, you had different militias that would form, some led by very good men, some led by very bad men, None of them were unified. They were all particularly convened to to fight or to obtain a specific objective, but they weren't unified in their purpose. So when Britain comes to really put down the rebellion, they send the full force of their army, the full force of their navy, and they launch a, a military and an economic assault against the colonies. And so the colonies now are, are faced with the full might of the British Empire, and, and the colonies even weren't unified. This was not a unified group of people. You had different territories that had different objectives, different interests, different people who were ruling. And so you had some colonies that were very favorable to England, and they negotiated their own trade deals with England. You had other colonies that were antagonistic towards the crown, and so they didn't want anything to do with them. And so you see all of these moving pieces come together, and, and we finally get a standing army in, the, in, in what, be, what becomes America, but at the time is the colonies, and they're not even a very unified force. In fact, they don't know how to do war, so they hire mercenaries to come and train and lead their armies, these people who are there for a paycheck and for personal glory, and these are the people that train our armies and lead. And so we start to fight and the fight doesn't go so well. We're very much outnumbered, we're outgunned, we're outresourced, and at the very last minute, when it looks like we're probably going to fail, um, we solicit help from the French. So Benjamin Franklin is in France, and, and France doesn't like England, so that helped us, and uh, they decided to take a gamble on this upstart rebellion against what at the time was the premier economic and military power in the world, the British Empire. They came in with their help at the, at the 11th hour, and, and because of the French's involvement and, and obviously the Lord's uh, providence, um, the rebellion was successful. So, so there's a lot of detail here, so much more color than I remember when I was going through school, seeing the different climates shift and change and the different interests. And you know, in my mind, what happened was America was sick of being taxed. They went and threw a bunch of tea into the Bay of Boston, and then our army beat the English, you know. You know, that, 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 that understanding has is, is got a, a red, white, and blue flag kind of waving in the background as I'm thinking of it. But, you know, as I really realized that that whole idea is a fallacy, there was no such thing as an American government. There certainly wasn't a unified American army. So uh, my, my present understanding of the way things worked was influencing my understanding of past events. So, so hearing those details, it helped me kind of walk in the shoes of, of some of the founding fathers. It even helped me walk in the shoes of some just common, ordinary people, people like you and me who were you know, in this new area for opportunity. They were farmers. They, they had families. And they largely 
we're caught in the middle of a, a war between local nobility, in a sense, and, and a foreign government. And a lot of these people, they just wanted to live their lives peacefully and prosper, but they weren't able to do that in that context. So I tell you that to tell you this, that the context of stories really enriches the story. When we get into the details and we get into the understanding of what was really going on in the climate at the time, it really brings the story to life. And this same principle is true with Bible stories, you know, stories that we've all heard so many times. Often we are... Um, we are reading our current understanding or understandings that other people have explained to us of what this means. And when we go back to the story and we read it, we've got that, that future or present understanding in our mind. And sometimes it can kind of color the way that we read the original story. So in Bible study circles, you're going to hear a, a phrase repeated a lot that says context is king. And basically what that means is that anytime you go to study the Bible, anytime you want to learn something from Scripture, you first have to do a little bit of work. You need to understand the context, right? So Scripture was written in a specific context at a point in time by a person inspired by the Holy Spirit to a group of people for a specific purpose. Now, Scripture is alive. It's active and living, sharper than any two-edged sword. So it's still the wonder of Scripture speaks into our hearts and our lives just as effectively today as it did back then. But it doesn't necessarily always mean the exact same thing. Now, that sounds a little weird, but let me explain. So the context is a specific people in a specific time. And they're going through things just like we're going through in, in our day-to-day -day lives. You know, they've got a government. They've got um, political problems. They've got health problems. They've got cultural problems. And so this is the, the sphere that the readers are in. And the writer is bringing God's word into that scenario. So first, he's speaking to them. So we need to understand what is he saying to them? What is the context? What does this necessarily mean in that context? And then once we understand that, we can draw those truths out and say, okay, then how does that inform my life today? So that's the process we need to take when we study scripture. So this morning, we're going to look at a, a story that Luke tells us um, about Jesus performing a miracle. And, and this is a story that many of you heard, maybe like me, you heard it in Sunday school um, or, or, or in a service like this. And you kind of maybe already have it in your mind of what the story means, kind of kind of what the story is trying to do, what, what it's trying to tell, what truth it's trying to convey. Um, but I hope that, that, that like me, as, as we get into this context a little bit more, we study this kind of with, with some, maybe some fresh eyes, um, that you're able to see that um, there is a very deep truth that's being illustrated here, deeper than a lot of times what we think maybe the passage is originally talking about. So that's what we're going to do this morning. But before we do that, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, we just come to you this morning just so excited to hear from your word. Lord, just so excited to hear from you. And Lord, uh, I just pray right now that, that as we spend time looking at, at our Savior, Jesus, as we spend time looking at what you've done on earth, Lord, that we would just be captivated by who you are and what your, what your heart for us is. Lord, you came to earth to rescue the lost, and we're so grateful for that. So, Father, open our hearts, open our minds, help us to see you clearly in this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so when we read the stories of Jesus uh, and, and all the fantastic things that he did, it's easy for us to be captivated by some of those things. You know, the, the life of Jesus and the apostles in, in many ways looks drastically different from our day-to-day -day lives, right? You're seeing incredible thing after incredible thing, and it's easy for us to get amazed at the amazing things that are being explained. That makes sense. But 
Sometimes we can do that at the expense of seeing maybe a deeper truth, or, or at least it can maybe hide a deeper truth in a, in a certain way. So uh, just, just picture yourself, 30 AD, you're walking around in a village, and you're seeing these things happen. What would your response be? You would be amazed. And, and that's the same thing that all the contemporaries of Jesus were. Is they, they were amazed. They're hearing him say things that they've never heard. They're seeing him do things. Many of these things are impossible things, and yet here he is. He's doing them. And so people started to follow Jesus around to, to hear him and to see what he was up to, what he was going to be doing. So each time he would go into a new village, he was greeted by a massive crowd. Um, and and they, they came to hear and to see. And, and many of these people in the crowd were desperate. You know, many of them were sick or hurting or broken. And they just wanted to say, hey, I've tried everything else. Maybe this guy that I've heard about can do something for me. So they would be coming and looking for, out of desperation, maybe somebody that could help them. Others maybe were just curious, like, I don't know if I really believe all this stuff, but this is what people are saying, so I want to go and check it out for myself. I want to see if there's anything to all these stories. But both of these groups would have been looking for the same thing. They would have been looking for Jesus to do something supernatural. They would have been looking for Jesus to show a demonstration of power that was outside of their normal context. And, and so when we read these stories... It's easy for us to kind of slip into that same mentality to focus on the overtly supernatural things that Jesus does and to become captivated by him. But what I want to do is I want us to go back in time a couple thousand years. So, so let's go on a trip together, okay? So we are now a village. Everybody here together, we're a village in Israel in 31 AD. And, and what does that look like? Well, we know each other very well, much better than we know each other now, because in a real sense, our very lives are dependent on each other. Most of us are farmers, some of us are tradespeople, but we all interact with each other in a way that, that ensures the mutual survival of our village. Okay, Are you all there? You hear the sounds, smell the smells. There's a lot of camels and stuff, so maybe don't smell the smells, but hear the sounds, feel the air. Okay, so here we are. And so, you know, we've had some people come in, into our village lately, and they've been telling us these stories, these fantastic stories of this guy that's walking around to different villages and he's teaching with authority. He's talking about God and he's doing impossible things. And, and many of us hear the things that they're doing and we think that's impossible. I, I, I don't believe that. I can't believe that. Others of us are, are maybe curious saying, wow, could that really be? I wonder what that would look like. And maybe even some of us are a little bit hopeful. Wow, I, I sure would like to meet somebody that could do something like that. But that's our context. And so then one day... After hearing some of these stories, a man shows up in our village and he walks in and he starts to talk to us and he starts to teach us. So let's turn to Luke 5, 17 through 26 and let's find out what happens next. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say rise and walk? 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So there's so many things to be captivated by in this story. So many uh, illustrations that are appropriate for our lives today. In fact, many different sermons on many different topics have been preached from this text alone. Some of the things we see from this text is the power of faith and what that can do in the life of somebody who trusts in Jesus. Uh, Another great illustration we see is the power of good friendships. You know, having relationships with people that love you so much, they disregard other people's personal property just to help you out. We also see Jesus here as healer, the, the, the man who can come and command somebody to stand and walk who's been paralyzed, and he does. And while all these things are good and right for us to think about, and the story certainly points us in those directions, there's one central point that this story serves to illustrate, one point that's far greater than all the other ones I've just mentioned. And that point is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. This was the essence of Jesus' ministry on earth. This is, in fact, the reason Jesus came down to earth, was to take on flesh, come down, and bring people into relationship with God through forgiving their sins. All the miracles, all the healings, and all the powerful works were done in support of that mission, but not instead of it. Paul tells us this in 1 Timothy 1.15 when he says, "...the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners." of who I am, the foremost. Jesus himself tells us this in Matthew twenty twenty five through 28. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so this is precisely what Jesus was illustrating to the religious leaders in our story this morning. He was not only saying that he had the ability to forgive sins, but he was demonstrating in the power that he showed that his authority was genuine. And one of the things that I love most about the stories of Jesus is that he's so intentional with the way that he interacts with people, right? Nothing is, is, is casually done or, or done by chance, but Jesus is, is so good at getting to the heart of the issue with people. He, he asks questions and engages people in a way that addresses their real thoughts and their feelings about who he is. And a lot of times he can identify doubt in the crowd and he'll interact with the crowd in a way to bring that doubt out to the surface so that people have to confront it. One of my favorite examples of this is found in Matthew 21, 23 through 27. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
And I, I just love that interaction because Jesus knew what they were trying to get at. But instead of just answering him directly, which he does in our story this morning in Luke, instead of just telling him where he gets the authority, he asks them a question and he forces them to wrestle with a concept and, and, and come to terms with, are you going to be honest in front of the crowd? Are you going to tell them where you think John came from? Are you going to identify your real motives behind asking me this question? And their answer essentially was, no, no, we're not. And so he withheld the answer for them um, just to make the point that, that they weren't willing to, to stand up for what they believed in. Um, and, and so the crowd could see that as well. So in our text this morning, <clears throat> Jesus operates in much the same way. If we look at the order of events that take place, we see Jesus taking an interesting approach. So when this man is lowered down to Jesus, Jesus perceived the faith that they had and he declared to the man that his sins were forgiven. Did you catch that? Jesus didn't immediately heal him. He told him, your sins are forgiven. And then when we read the rest of the text, we can see that he was not healed physically immediately. There was a period of time where the Pharisees were allowed to doubt. And then Jesus then healed him after that. We, we sometimes, um, as, as we focus on this, we can focus on the healing as being the, the main reason. Um, when I think about it in my memory, I, I always thought about this story as that time where the friends lowered the paralytic down through the roof and Jesus healed this man. And that was my understanding of the story, but that's not the main point of the story at all. The main point of the story is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, not just to heal. And, and what I love about this is in, in this encounter, the Pharisees were following right along with Jesus. They, better than anybody in the crowd, knew what Jesus was actually saying when he was taking this approach. Imagine their shock when this man from a neighboring village comes into town in the midst of a great crowd and essentially declares himself capable of forgiving sins, equating himself to God. The Pharisees knew that's what he was saying, and they, they did not react um, favorably. But, you know, I, I kind of put myself in the position of the Pharisees here, and I think that our hindsight can kind of maybe cause us to be a little bit uncharitable or unfair to the Pharisees. So, so let's think about the Pharisees for a second. The Pharisees, you know, the, the Jews in particular, um, but the Pharisees specifically, were unique amongst all the nations around them. They were a monotheistic culture. They believed in one true God. And they were surrounded by pagan cultures that believed in a pantheon of gods, hundreds, thousands of gods even. At this point in time, when, when this interaction takes place, Israel is, is, is ruled by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was an extremely pagan empire, and they had many different beliefs. Not only did they believe their Caesars were equated to God, and, and, and they were under command to worship their Caesars, but a wide litany of gods collected from all over the world as the empire expanded was there. And so you've got the Pharisees who have, for all of eternity, or all of, all of, all of creation, have held fast to this idea that there's only one true God. And they have fought against the encroaching paganism that's all around them. And they've paid dearly for this over time. And, and them and their ancestors have been persecuted, murdered, um, and, and, and tortured in a variety of different ways in an attempt to get them to, to disavow their belief in the one true God. But yet they persist. Through training and through study, they hold fast to this idea that there is only one God. And so it's this group of people that are in the audience partially where this guy basically walks in and says, hey, by the way, I'm God. You know, How would we react if we were in their shoes? Maybe not the same way that we would think with a benefit of hindsight. Imagine today, somebody right now walks in through the, through the gathering we're having right now, makes their way up onto stage, grabs the mic off my head and says, 
hey, everybody, I'm Jesus, returned as I promised in the scriptures, here to fulfill the scriptures. What would our initial reaction be to that? But Jesus is no man. And so he interacts with the Pharisees in a perfect way, so intentional about what he's doing, knowing the, object, the objections that they're raising. He goes about proving that he is God. And again, our, our current understanding kind of limits us a little bit in, in, in seeing the real impact of what Jesus is doing here. So, so let's go back again uh, to our village. So we're, we're back in our village now. And um, we basically have two main thoughts about illness and sickness, um, two schools of thought. The first thought was that, um, you know, illness and sickness are just kind of generally part of life. You know, we see it around us in the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, and we see it amongst ourselves too. We get sick and we die. Everybody gets sick, everybody dies. And, and this is maybe a, a, an acknowledgement that, you know, it's not the way maybe it was supposed to be, but because sin entered in the world and death through sin, because sin came through the fall, we are now subject to these constructs, right? And, and I think many of us believe this same kind of thing today. We don't believe that God created the world intentionally with death and sickness in mind as the original intended experience. But through the fall and sin entering the world through that fall, sin and death is now a reality that we all face. And, and that was one view. They, they had doctors there. In fact, Luke, the author of this book and of Acts, was a physician by trade that would go around and they would heal people. They would attempt to, to you know, bandage wounds, heal the sick. And, and they didn't really have a, a huge spiritual component with it in every circumstance. But there was a secondary thought about illness and sickness and infirmity that didn't run opposite to this first one, but kind of ran parallel, side by side. And this said that when you see illness or infirmity, especially these big ones like leprosy or paralysis or blindness, that those were instances of divinely orchestrated judgment for sin in the lives of the believer. In, in other words, that God afflicted this person with blindness, afflicted this person with uh, paralysis because they sinned so badly that it required that or their parents or grandparents even had a sin. And so we see that um, Jesus addresses this and actually kind of flips that thought on its head in Jesus, uh, in Jesus, in John 9, 1 through 7. So Jesus and his disciples are walking by and they encounter a man who's been blind from birth. As, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So we see here even, even Jesus' own disciples are expressing elements of this belief that, okay, we see this man here. Well, clearly, since he's been blind from birth, this is divinely appointed judgment. So who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus kind of flips that idea up on its head and he says it, it's not that that they sinned now they certainly did sin just like we certainly sin him and his parents certainly did sin but he said sin is not the reason for this illness this illness was divinely appointed by god to demonstrate the glory of god so we go back to our story and jesus heals the paralytic to demonstrate that he is the authority on earth to forgive sins 
This was tangible proof of the intangible miracle. So Jesus first forgave the man's sins. Well, there's no way for anybody to prove or disprove that this was done except for God, who can only see the state of this man. So this was an intangible miracle that was done. But then Jesus follows it up with a tangible demonstration of power to prove that he does have the authority to forgive sins. So, but wait a minute, didn't we just see in John that Jesus kind of discredits the idea that sin and sickness are always interrelated? Why did he associate the two in this circumstance? And what I think we have here is an example of Jesus using the culture. He's using their uh, incomplete understanding of the way things are to speak truth and life into a situation. Uh, To the Pharisees, only God could forgive sins, but only God could do the miraculous works that Jesus was also doing. Only God could heal, only God could restore, only God could raise from the dead, only God could rebuke demons, only God could enable his prophets or his messengers to do those same things. And we see a couple of examples of this being illustrated. Matthew 2, 22 through 28 says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We see in John 3, 1 and 2, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, acknowledges the same truth when he comes to Jesus and says, uh, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the things... No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So back in our story, Jesus orchestrates the events to be able to present the Pharisees with a perfect logical puzzle. I'm going to forgive sins. Nobody but God can forgive sins. Then I'm going to heal this man. And nobody but God can authorize or empower healing. If I said I forgave this man his sins and I'm blaspheming, then that means that God is not with me. And then I would be unable to heal this man of his infirmity. But if I pronounce his sins are forgiven and then I heal him, I have just proven that I have the authority both to heal and to forgive sins. And this is what he does in our story this morning. He proves to the Pharisees that yes, I am telling you I'm God and it's true. Jesus, he, in fact, he gave the paralytic the best gift first, the forgiveness of sins. You know, and, and this is the point of our story, the point of Jesus' ministry. You know, so often we, we get captured by the supernatural, in this case what we would call the healing, that we can focus on the fact that, wow, look at Jesus healed this paralyzed man. But we can overlook the fact that, wow, look at the God of the universe forgiving the sins of this sinful man. This is the heart of the gospel, and this is why Jesus came. Listen to 1 John 4, 9 through 14. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, 
Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Three different times in our passage, we see that God sent Jesus to earth for our salvation. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So here we see the heart of Jesus' ministry. And, and how much more rich now does that statement then look to us when Jesus looks at the man that was just lowered through the ceiling and he tells him, your sins have been forgiven. So, so what are our takeaways from this story? Well, this morning I want us to focus on two primary takeaways. There's lots of things to learn from this story, but I just want to focus on these two this morning. The first is, is a bit of a warning that I think we get from the Pharisees' interaction with Jesus here. And I think the warning can be best sum, summarized as, do we recognize God? Are we only looking for God to appear in ways that we determine? Does God need to conform to our predetermined beliefs before we can recognize him? The Pharisees were experts in the word and by all accounts were the most spiritually knowledgeable people of their time. But they were the most resistant to the presence of Jesus because he challenged their construct on who God was and how he came to relate to his people. How are we similar to the Pharisees? I think for us, the modern reader of scripture, uh, the temptation is to vilify and to a degree be arrogant to the failings of the Pharisees, to recognize Jesus when he was right in front of them. You know, I'm convinced that we're often much closer to the Pharisees' mentality than we would care to admit. As post-Pentecostal believers, we have the spirit of the living God dwelling within us, something the Pharisees weren't promised and didn't have. Yet how often do we only look for God to show up in a certain way? How often are we resistant to that still small voice that would lead us and direct us into areas that are maybe uncomfortable? How many opportunities to share and show the kingdom am I missing because my heart and my mind is closed off in those moments because I'm not open to the Spirit's leading? So I want us to ask ourselves a couple of questions. Are we only looking for God to show up in ways that we expect? Another question I want us to ask ourselves is, are, are we only looking for God to show up in ways that we're comfortable with? The Pharisees were literally in the presence of the living God, yet for all their dedication and study, they would not or even could not recognize their God standing right in front of them. What a good warning for us that as believers who are now always in the presence of God, who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, not to rely on our own strength or our own wisdom, not to rely even on our own understanding of Scripture, or even our own preconceived notions of who God is and how he comes to act or interact with us. In what ways is the Lord challenging us to go deeper and to know him more truly? As we grow in relationship, as we go deeper in our walk with the Lord, we're going to see and hear him more and more clearly. And the good news is that God has given us his Holy Spirit to lead us in that endeavor.
The second takeaway I want us to, to, to go away with this morning is an encouragement. The true work of Christ is a permanent and everlasting work. Christ came to redeem and save the lost and to unite them in adoption as sons and daughters to their heavenly father. Those that were healed by Jesus ultimately died. Those that were raised from the dead ultimately succumbed to death again. But the real, true, everlasting work of Christ is to reconcile us to our Heavenly Father, to bring us into an intimate and peaceful relationship with the God of the universe, and to usher us into an everlasting kingdom where we'll get to know and interact with our Savior for all of time. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Let us never get dull of this truth. Let us never cease to be amazed at the work that Christ accomplished on earth. Let us not forget that we were ransomed and that ransom came at a great price. If you're a believer here this morning, I I just want to encourage you that, that you are in an intimate relationship with the creator of the world, with the creator of the universe. And that relationship is so personal. Scripture talks about it as a, as a parental relationship, a perfect parental relationship. And, and this is not just something that we have to look forward to eventually. We don't just have a hope in heaven, but, you know, we just got to trudge through it until we get there. Yes, heaven will be better than earth by far. And there's, there's great cause to be celebratory and excited about what that's going to look like. But Jesus also brought redemption and reconciliation to us right now. You have, through a relationship with Christ, access to perfect peace, to perfect love, to perfect wisdom, to perfect security. And we don't always feel like that. You know, sometimes situations happen in our lives and and we wonder, "Ah, how's this going to work out? You know, is God really going to do what I want him to do here? But it's in those moments we need to ask ourselves a question. When has God failed me in the past? When have I counted on him and he's shown himself to be unfaithful? Never. Never in your life has that ever happened. Use those moments as testimonies to yourself to talk about the future struggle. I don't know how this is going to work out, Lord, but you're batting a thousand. Every single challenge in my life, I can see, especially now that I've been through it, I can see your hand in it. And so while I don't see it right now in the way that I expect, Lord, I just trust in you. And when you do that, and it's effort, but when you do that, you will receive peace that passes understanding. You will experience joy in the midst of trials. You will experience wisdom and leading in ways that you don't know which way to go. As a Christian, that's your birthright. Hold on to that. Count on that. Trust in that and seek after that. God promises us those who seek will find. Those who knock, it will be opened. This is God's good pleasure to love us this way. As a, as a perfect father loves and longs to lead his children in the way that he wants them to go. If you're not a believer here this morning and maybe you're wrestling with this or, or, or these stories or concepts are, are new or maybe they're old to you and, you and they've just never clicked, I just want to encourage you to just see the words in the life of Jesus. See what Jesus' posture towards us is. He came to heal. 
but not necessarily physically first. He came to hear us, heal us spiritually. Jesus desires to bring you into that relationship. He loves you perfectly, more than you can ever conceive of. Everything that you're struggling with now, everything that you're, you're wrestling with now, God desires to redeem. God desires to speak into that. God desires to bring you into relationships so that you can trust in him. Think about Christ. Think about the works that he's done. Think about the testimony that he's shown. Consider that. And then, I, and then I urge you to place your faith in that. He is trustworthy. Though everybody else in the world fails, he is faithful. Let's pray. Father, uh, we just come to you this morning just overwhelmed by gratitude. Just so many different areas, but Lord, that you would see us in our condition and that your love was so great that you would send yourself, that you would send your son down to earth to love us in a perfect way, to lead us in reconciliation. Father, that you would bring healing to our souls. Lord, help us to to rest in that truth, to see that love, and to, dis- and to just depend on that love so much. Father, bring us into deeper relationships with you. Help us to understand you more. Help us to hear you more. Help us to see you more. And help us to share and to show others you more. Father, our desire is to please you. Our desire is to know you. Our desire is to be with you now. And our glorious hope and our, and our glorious confidence is that we will be with you for all of eternity. Lead us in this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.